Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome the History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. This is the History of the World podcast, unscripted. Hello everyone, welcome to the History of the World podcast Unscripted. Uh, The reason why we've got an unscripted episode this week is because I'm still currently in the process of writing the next episode. The next episode is on the Elizabethan sea dogs. So it's going to be an episode that's going to be quite packed full of information. Um, It's quite an intense one. It's going to be worth the wait, I'll tell you that. The... um, the story will contain um, Queen Elizabeth I of England, Queen Philip II of Spain. Uh, we'll also be meeting Sir Francis Drake and Sir Walter Raleigh, among others. And uh, it really does take place in the theatre of exploration, those first voyages across the Atlantic to the Americas. So we'll be discovering a lot more about the aspects of those early years. So it's really going to be an exciting episode. Now... Um, this week we're going to still um, quench your history thirst by doing one of our um, one of our new magazine style episodes um, on the unscripted uh, on the unscripted uh, episode library. And uh, this week we're going to be looking back at what was going on in the history of the world podcast on this date on previous years gone by. Now this time last year. We were talking about the Battle of Hastings, one of the most famous battles in human history, where the Normans invaded uh, the English from uh, overseas, from over on the continent uh, in French land. So let's find out exactly what happened as we go back one year and, uh, and revisit this story. Let's find out exactly what happened on that fateful day in 1066. Accounts of the Battle of Hastings mention a character called Tayfair, who had travelled with the Normans to England and then to the battle. At the start of the battle, Tayfair emerged from the Norman front line. He is said to have started singing the Song of Roland, which refers back to the Battle of Roncevaux Pass, a famous Frankish battle from the 8th century and subject of our episode 18. He is also said to have been playfully juggling with his sword. 
Whether or not these accounts are strictly true or not, there is a suspicion of him charging into the Anglo-Saxons and killing two men before being slain himself. With the Anglo-Saxons holding the higher ground, William gave the order for the Normans to deploy their archers in a bid to overcome the disadvantage. The Anglo-Saxons quickly sheltered under a wall of shields. It was clear that the Anglo-Saxon army's tactic would be to weather the Norman attacks and then pick them off. For the Normans, they had to be the aggressors in order to break down the Anglo-Saxons, but they had to attack with care due to their position on the battlefield. Norman advances were somewhat worthless as the Anglo-Saxons sheltered behind their shield wall and used their spears to pick off advancing Norman infantrymen one by one after the Normans had exhausted an amount of their arrows in the initial attacks. It was clear that the Normans would have to be much more innovative in order to gain the upper hand. The Norman left-hand flank was predominantly Bretons from Brittany. The Bretons were commanded to advance forcibly. This time, the Anglo-Saxons were not only able to weather the attack, but they were also able to chase the Bretons back down the hill. The Norman army was in disarray by this time, and not making any kind of headway against the hardy Anglo-Saxons. William himself was seemingly unhorsed during this shambles and a rumour spread throughout the Norman ranks that William had been killed. If this had been the case then it is likely that you could believe that this could have been the end for the Normans. However, William emerged from the chaos and he mounted his horse, opened the grille of his helmet and declared that he was still alive. This was hugely uplisting for the Norman army, most of whom had invested everything in the success of this battle and possibly believed that they had lost everything. Now hope was restored. Time was against the Normans, as they needed a result. If night fell, the Anglo-Saxons would have held out and the battle may be lost. William needed to do something. So it may be then that William decided to deploy the Breton left flank again, but this time it would be a feigned attack in order to entice the Anglo-Saxons to pursue them once again and break the ranks of their well-organised defences. This time the tactic worked and many Anglo-Saxons who had left the safety of their ranks were rounded up on a hillock and slaughtered. The Norman cavalry then advanced in a bid to exploit the holes in the Anglo-Saxon battle lines now that the likelihood of impact was much higher than at the start of the day. The result of hours of battle saw great numbers of Normans and Anglo-Saxons killed in ever-growing numbers on the battlefield. The Anglo-Saxons' walls tightened as their numbers had become depleted and William had to organise one more attack as the day grew weary. How many of the Norman and Anglo-Saxon nobility had been killed by this point is unknown. The hill was a slippery, bloody mess of bodies, armour and weapons. The Norman archers filled the air with arrows once again as the remains of the Norman infantry and cavalry attempted to advance. It seems that the Anglo-Saxon defences gave way to this great last desperate advance. The most famous account of the battle is the illustration called the Bayer Tapestry, 
and it depicts a man being struck in the eye by an arrow that has been speculated to be a depiction of Harold Godwinson's death. Some accounts say that he was struck in the face by an arrow but removed the arrow and continued fighting. Some historians say that the arrow was a later addition to a version of the Bayer Tapestry that has been mistaken for the original version. Some even say that the figure in the embroidery isn't even Harold. Accounts of Harold's death describe how he was hacked to pieces during a Norman advance with there being no mention of an arrow at all. We do know that Harold was killed. We also know that his brothers, Gerth Godwinson, Earl of East Anglia, and Leofwin Godwinson, Earl of Kent, also died at this battle. This is significant because it ruled out the Godwin line in terms of claims to the English crown going forward. The Anglo-Saxon army was either slaughtered where it stood, fighting until the bitter end, or they fled, knowing that there was no hope. Now, two years ago, we were talking about South America and uh, we were looking at the ancient cultures of South America and particularly the Nazca. Now, this area of the world in uh, the modern country of Peru is incredible, really, for what was going on in ancient times. There were the construction of these incredible geoglyphs, which are called the Nazca Lines, which it wasn't really until the 20th century in the advent of air travel that we really appreciated the scope and the and the sheer talent of the construction of these uh, geoglyphic shapes but let's find out more about them as we explore what we were talking about two years ago. Close to Kahawachi we've confined evidence of something that has amazed modern humankind. They are called Nazca Lines. The Nazca lines are geoglyphs, and a geoglyph is a huge design made on the surface of the land by digging the earth or using rocks. The purpose of these geoglyphs is a mysterious thing. On the one hand, there are a series of straight lines which in some cases point towards sunset locations and alike, which is not surprising because we can see that humans were fascinated by the movements of the objects of the sky, seemingly everywhere in the world. It is only now that we can view the earth from the air like never before, and that we can truly appreciate the work of the Nazca, because it is only from the air that we can understand their true form. The Nazca were creating large-scale images of humans, animals and shapes on the landscape that any land-based outsider would not be able to detect. From the air, it's completely different. From the air, the astonishing creations of the Nazca can be seen in their full glory. There is nothing else quite like it, certainly not on this scale, anywhere else in the world. The geoglyphs of England are probably more modern, apart from the Uffington White Horse, which could date back as far as the Nazca geoglyphs. As for the Nazca geoglyphs, there are more than a dozen giant images of animals with further evidence of other geometric-shaped geoglyphs on the desert landscape. Mainly, the huge images are somewhat linear, 
without being totally made up from straight lines only. So the wings of birds have been recreated using a series of long straight lines, but the tail of the monkey is a long spiral and the body of the spider is circular. The long straight lines are likely to have been dug into the earth with the assistance of stakes and ropes in order to preserve their straightness. And their survival into the modern day is a reflection of the lack of wind and rain in the area, which could point us towards a reason for their existence. Water was an essential commodity in this area and ancient cultures of Peru needed to be somewhat ingenious to make the most of their water by utilising the impressive irrigation skills that we have already mentioned. The straight lines are not something to be overlooked with aspects of the geoglyph orientation either pointing towards or being perpendicular to sunrises and sunsets which indicate a form of celestial body worship. But other experts suggest that the geoglyphs in some cases are also pointing towards sources of water such as those that were carefully manipulated by the puquios, the stone spirals leading down into the underground irrigation channels. The main source of water being the underground aquifers whose existence would not have been obvious to people on the surface. Seeing is believing, so I would strongly encourage you to look up these Nazca geoglyphs online and see them for yourself. Three years ago, we were writing, we were also writing special episodes for History of the World podcast Illuminati members that qualified for the right to to have that special privilege. And um, about three years ago, we we did publish a special episode, um, and it was about the House of Vassa, which was um, fundamentally, I think, in its in its uh, it, it did affect European countries of the seventeenth century, and and like I, I would suggest, fundamentally, we can talk about Sweden and the seventeenth century as really being. Um, the central home of of this dynasty, but it did stretch over into other countries and other centuries as well. Um, But part of the story of the House of Vasa was um, the story of one of the greatest kings of Sweden, uh, Gustavus Adolphus, and we discussed him three years ago. The tensions between Catholics and Protestants was not just isolated to Sweden and Poland during this period, but it would be a major and escalating issue throughout the whole of Northern Europe. The death of King Karl IX in 1611 would bring his son, Gustavus Adolphus, to the throne as King Gustav II of Sweden. Gustav II's reign was a very significant one in Swedish history. With his father being a Calvinist, Gustavus was also a Protestant and a protector of the Lutheran Church in Sweden. His father had also been careful to nurture Gustavus's knowledge as a future statesman and had been exposed to military exchanges from a young age. Gustavus was just 16 years of age when he came to the throne in 1611, but he had already developed a great deal of knowledge for a man so young. Gustavus 
would still have to deal with the problem of his cousin, the Catholic King Sigismund III Vasa of Poland, believing that he was still the rightful King of Sweden during the early years of his reign. Sweden was also a weak nation at the beginning of the 17th century thanks to the political turmoil that it had experienced being sandwiched between the threats of Denmark, Poland and Russia. So Gustavus was very much under pressure to make quick political reforms from the very start. Gustavus would make an agreement of peace with the Danish, subduing his western front and would then put all of Sweden's energy into defeating the Russians during the Ingrian War, so that Sweden could stay in control of the territories surrounding the Baltic Sea, thus denying Russia. Gustavus would then support the Russians in their conflicts against his cousin, Sigismund III, Gustavus's natural enemy in Poland-Lithuania. Gustavus would look to modernise the entire social structure of Sweden. A permanent government would sit in the capital city of Stockholm, with the Riksdag regulating its decisions. Gustavus would ensure that the country's peasantry was not a forgotten class, but he also did enough to support the nobility that this action did not cause civil conflict. Sweden had accepted the Lutheran Church as its national church, so there was no conflict involving the country's clergy. Gustavus also improved the educational establishments of Sweden, investing in the country's future, and he would also allow immigrant workers and businesses a good amount of freedom within Swedish borders, so that the country could develop economically at a quicker rate than its neighbours. Gustavus would therefore be able to set up the structure of a professional army and invest in modern warfare tactics, and so we would see Sweden under Gustavus develop arguably into the most modern country of Europe, with an innovative approach to governance that would inspire other countries to follow its lead and its model in the future. Alongside the modernisation of the army, was also the modernisation of the navy so that Sweden could have superior command of the trade routes of the Baltic Sea. Despite all of this reform, there was never a peaceful resolution between Gustavus and Sigismund with neither country really gaining an upper hand over the other. King Sigismund III of Poland never wanted to recognise Gustavus as the King of Sweden, regarding him as a usurper, but Gustavus's position in Sweden was firm and popular with the population, so Sigismund knew all too well that an invasion of Swedish territory was futile, as Gustavus had created a highly effective national state that would rally behind him without question should Sigismund choose to challenge him. The swift development of Sweden was important for another reason, and that is because a wider issue had fallen on Europe as a result of the Reformation and the subsequent Counter-Reformation of the 16th century. By now, many of the nations of Europe had chosen to identify themselves as either Catholic or Protestant in a bid 
to not only stabilise their national identity, but also to qualify to be in league with each other should tensions escalate between both churches of Europe. And indeed, this happened. When Catholic rulers of Bohemia, a modern region in the Czech Republic, prevented Protestant practices within the kingdom, the Protestants responded by ejecting two Catholic regents from a window of Prague Castle. And this would be the spark that ignited the powder keg of 17th century Europe, spiralling the continent into a conflict retrospectively called the Thirty Years' War, from the year 1618. The main belligerents of the Catholic cause during the Thirty Years' War were the European monarchs from the House of Habsburg, predominantly Austria and Spain, during this period. The Protestants formed from the Lutherans and Calvinists formed an anti-Habsburg evangelical union which initially had successes early in the conflict, but the Habsburgs formed a Catholic league which hit back hard against the anti-Habsburgs, outlawing and destroying Protestant worship and their centres. The general conflict affected many areas of the Holy Roman Empire of Central Europe, and with the anti-Habsburgs suffering defeats, they would need to turn to the wider Protestant community of Europe for support. Alarmed by the threat of Habsburg expansion, Christian IV of Denmark would pledge his support for the anti-Habsburg cause in 1624, and despite Denmark's traditionally frosty relationship with Sweden, Gustavus feared Habsburg expansion also, and so offered support to Christian's stance against them. So now, not only was Sweden in conflict with Poland-Lithuania over the dynastic direction of Sweden's throne, but now they were against each other as a natural proxy of the religious undercurrent of the Thirty Years' War. Denmark was neutralised by the Habsburgs in 1629 and was forced to play no further part in the Thirty Years' War if it wanted to retain its territory. So now Gustavus was in direct conflict with the Habsburgs and this would be the ultimate test of all the reforms that he had put in place to bring Sweden into modernity. Most Protestant states had either been neutralised or feared the Habsburgs, so Sweden was really entering into something quite threatening. Gustavus was quick to remind European Protestants of the atrocities that potentially would befall them if they allowed the Habsburgs to simply walk into their territories and that they should stand up and fight for their cause. The Catholic League, led by Johann Serklas, the Count of Tilly, invaded neutral Saxony in order to approach the Swedes who had crossed the Baltic Sea and were consolidating their position in northern mainland Europe. This would cause the predominantly Lutheran electorate of Saxony to join the Swedish cause against the Catholic League and the Swedish-Saxon alliance won a huge victory 
at the Battle of Breitenfeld in 1631. The significance of this victory meant that European Protestants started believing that they could stand up against the Catholic League and so they rallied to the Swedish cause more readily. The Habsburg Catholic League clearly had not realised how strong Sweden had become during the reign of Gustavus Adolphus and was forced to completely rethink its entire war strategy. Gustavus's army would meet the Catholic League in battle again the following year on Saxon soil and once again the Protestant Swedish-led army scored a huge victory at the Battle of Lützen. However, this battle is significant because although the Protestants were victorious, Gustavus was caught up in the dense fog and found himself astray behind enemy lines where he would be brutally slaughtered. The legacy of King Gustav II Adolf, Vasa of Sweden, was huge. Within a couple of years of his death, he was quickly stylized as King Gustavus Adolphus the Great, and this was thanks to his highly advanced social reforms, his effective modernization of national government, his innovative military tactics which harmonized the cavalry alongside the pike and musket infantry, and his popularity as a confident Protestant leader. And it was thanks to him that Sweden would enjoy a period of imperial dominance during the 17th and 18th centuries. We talk a lot about the ancient dynasties of Egypt, such as the Old Kingdom, the Middle Kingdom and the New Kingdom. And we also talk a lot about the Ptolemaic dynasties of Egypt that uh, resulted in Queen Cleopatra's reign. But we don't always focus too much on the bit in between. So uh, about four years ago, we did an episode about that period and um, now let's take a look back at the third intermediate period, the uh, the period immediately following the New Kingdom and how foreign influences really started to control Egypt for the first time. Ramesses XI died in around 1070 BCE and the decentralised entity of Egypt continued to exist with more localised rule. Than previously. High priests of Amun effectively governed the lands of Upper Egypt from the power base at Thebes, while Lower Egypt was ruled out of Tanis by the new dynasty whose origins are unknown. We know that the first pharaoh called Smendes is supposed to have buried the last pharaoh of the 20th dynasty, Ramesses XI. However, although this might sound like a kingdom permanently split into two, it does appear that there was a degree of intermarriage between the two factions, so there was a diplomatic bond between Upper and Lower Egypt. It wasn't all straightforward during this period, and there were internal rebellions to be dealt with. What this period really was, was an adaption to circumstances, a necessary arrangement to protect what was left from a tough phase of Egyptian history, 
the downturn in general prosperity that seemed to occur in a widespread fashion after the late Bronze Age collapse seems to have been a great leveller for the lesser societies that had remained in existence throughout. An example of this would be the Libyans. Libya was an area of land to the west of Egypt and further down the Mediterranean coast. Egypt had campaigned in Libya at least as far back as the days of the Old Kingdom. There were certainly campaigns by the Middle Kingdom pharaohs, but also we can see that the New Kingdom pharaoh Ramesses III had to deal with aggression from the Libyans during his reign. The people of Libya are considered to be Berbers. Now, we mentioned the Berbers when discussing how the Phoenicians established the trade centre of Carthage on the North African coast back in episode 9. It was the Berbers who stood in the way of this Phoenician incursion into their lands, as these lands had always been the home of the Berbers, going right back to the origins of the Neolithic period. They had their own language and ethnicity. One tribe of Berbers from the lands of Libya that are mentioned in Egyptian New Kingdom texts are the Meshwesh. The Meshwesh started to take advantage of the weakened Egyptian state and they had been conducting raids on the lands of the Nile which forced the lower and upper Egyptians to recognise them as an entity within Egypt and an ethnic group that needed to be accepted and integrated into Egyptian affairs. So it's during the days of the 21st dynasty that we can see that the Meshwesh were also a part of these political marriages. And this is how we believe that Meshwesh Libyan Berbers were able to become the pharaohs of the 22nd dynasty. They intermarried and ultimately inherited the throne. So now Egypt appears to be under a foreign rule where the pharaohs are actually Libyan in bloodline origin. This bloodline would prosper for over 200 years. However, it really only prospered in its power base in Lower Egypt, as it is suggested that although the Libyans attempted to integrate into Egyptian society and customs, that they would start to distance themselves from the devoted worship of Amun, much to the chagrin of the priests of Amun, who ruled in Upper Egypt from the city of Thebes. It was at the beginning of the 9th century BCE that the Thebans would establish an independence from the Libyans of Lower Egypt. Over the course of the 9th and 8th centuries BCE, the situation would only get worse. With the Thebans standing up for their own independent rule, other local areas would have kings that would also rise up against any kind of centralised rule. This would weaken Egypt as a country and make it vulnerable to further foreign invasion and things were becoming more dangerous in the Nubian lands around the cataracts of the Nile. The city of Napata, which had been established by the 18th dynasty pharaoh Thutmose III, was now the power base for another kingdom, the kingdom of Kush. The Kushites of Nubia had been observing the instability of Upper Egyptian lands throughout the 8th century BCE and licking their lips. They saw an opportunity to take action against the nation that on so many occasions had subjugated them. 
Now it was their turn to make the Egyptians miserable, starting with the Thebans. It seems evident that over the course of time, the Nubians had been exposed to Egyptian religion and as such they were very familiar with it. So when the Kushites attacked Upper Egypt, they did it in the name of the Egyptian deity Amun. The influence of the Libyan Berbers in the Delta region had been reduced to a small area due to the uprising in local monarchs, so there was little in the way of unity in Lower Egypt. The Kushites managed to move successfully into Upper Egyptian lands where there was much more of a cultural and spiritual link for them, but with Lower Egypt in the condition it was, there seemed to be no reason why they couldn't progress even further, especially as it does seem like some of the local monarchs of Lower Egypt felt more closely linked to the Kushites than their neighbouring nomarchs. When Tefnacht, a prince of the delta town of Sais, besieged Heracleopolis, the Kushite king Pai saw this as an opportunity to aid the Heracleopolitans and pressure the nomarchs of the delta. So he conducted what the Kushites would describe as a holy war on the rulers of the delta and pushed them out of their cities and onto the fringes of the kingdom. Pai would have to return to Nubia after this success, but his brother Shabaka would come back to the delta and would defeat Bakamranif, the son of Tefnacht, and subsequently burnt him alive as a heretic, therefore justifying the action as religiously correct and denying Bakamranif his path to the afterlife. The Egyptian kingdom had fallen apart during the 11th century and had fallen under the rule of Libyan Berbers during the 10th century and then it was conquered by the Kushites at the end of the 8th century. The Kushites established what we now regard as the 25th dynasty of Egypt and because the Kushites embraced a large amount of Egyptian tradition we see their ruler call themselves pharaohs. They would even build pyramids for their pharaohs and you can still see evidence of these pyramids today, generally called the Nubian pyramids and definitely worth a look. These Nubian pyramids were a lot more modest in size but they built plenty of them and they are quite impressive looking. The siege of Lachish was a military event which took place in the kingdom of Judah in 701 BCE. We looked at this siege in detail in episode 8. It was an act of aggression by the Assyrian Empire during their attempt to subjugate the Judeans. The lands of Judah were very closely linked to Egypt throughout its history and there hadn't been a lot of Egyptian activity in this area since the decline of the New Kingdom centuries before. Now, the Kushites had established a strong rule in the lands of Egypt and were looking to try to restore Egypt to former glories. The problem was that the Canaanite lands that the Kushites had their eye on were now very much subjugated by the Assyrians. The Assyrians would have known of the increasing threat of the Kushite Egyptians. One of the characters who we see mentioned around this time is a son of Pai called Taharka. Taharka became the pharaoh of Egypt in around 690 BCE, but he may have been the Tiraka mentioned in the Bible as the Ethiopian who assisted the Judean king Hezekiah in resisting the siege incurred on Jerusalem by the Assyrians. 
Whatever the truth is, it does appear that the pharaoh Taharka was sticking his nose into Canaanite affairs a little too much for the new Assyrian king Esarhaddon's liking. Esarhaddon would launch military campaigns against the Kushite Egyptians during the 670s and it does seem that he would press deeper and deeper into the lands of Lower Egypt over the course of the decade. This would ultimately result in the capture of the city of Memphis in around 671 BCE. Taharka fled south towards the Kushite heartlands before Esarhaddon himself had to return to his own Assyrian heartlands. Taharka then came back to Memphis and reoccupied it, and Esarhaddon died en route back to Egypt to deal with it in 668 BCE. It was down to Esarhaddon's son, Ashurbanipal, to deal with it now. Ashurbanipal launched a new offensive against Taharka and ran him out of Memphis and back to Thebes again. This time, Ashurbanipal would put a local nomarch called Nico in control of Lower Egypt, under the protection of, but also subject to Ashurbanipal's Assyrian Empire. Taharka did not return to the delta, as he died in 664 BCE. Taharka's nephew, Tantamani, would take the Kushite throne, and no sooner had he done so, then he was heading back down the Nile towards the delta. When he got there, he killed the Assyrian puppet pharaoh, Nico. This time, Ashurbanipal had to get serious, and indeed he did. He returned to Egypt, and with the support of Nico's son, Samtik, he would march on and sack Thebes. This would send the Kushites back to Nubia, and with Thebes destroyed, there was no ability to recover. Ashurbanipal would instate Samtik as the new 26th dynasty pharaoh of Egypt, and the Kushite dynasty was now well and truly over. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast, an unscripted retrospective special. And I'm pleased to be able to present these episodes now. I know um, it's not what everyone's looking for, but really I do think, um, for me, it's quite interesting to go back into the annals of what we've already published. And it also takes the pressure off me a bit when I'm desperately trying to uh, give you a proper episode every week. This particular episode about Elizabethan sea dogs that I'm writing at the moment, I don't want to compromise on it because it's such a good subject. So, um, for the uh, for the uh, for the person who did commission the episode, I don't want to let him down either. It uh, really is um, an incredible story, 
uh, and I'm looking forward to presenting it to you. So it's definitely worth delaying uh, for that fact. And um, I, it was quite interesting to go back into the history and look at, look at some of the aspects of history that we we don't always give enough consideration to. So with the Battle of Hastings, of course, everyone talks about it at every opportunity, don't they, when we're looking at history. But uh, with things like the Nazca Lines, it's something that I believe that should be talked about more, this incredible uh, creation of uh, human, you know, it's human achievement is incredible and we really don't know enough about it. So um, I, I welcome that opportunity. Also, thank you for listening to this week's podcast episode. And uh, if you enjoy this particular podcast, the History of the World podcast, and you would like to support the podcast, then please, by all means, visit our website and click on the Patreon link. And um, you can sign up to make a monthly contribution. You too can qualify for the right to commission episodes on the subjects of your choice as as what we're doing at the moment so the latest batch of episodes have been commissioned by history of the world podcast illuminati members and this is what you would become if you make a monthly contribution you become a lifelong member of the history of the world podcast illuminati and this week um i am pleased to welcome into the history of the world podcast illuminati wally thomas and um also um someone someone has bought me 20 books um which you can also do on the website you can buy me a book someone's bought me 20 books but they've done it anonymously so thank you to that anonymous person and um welcome into the history of the world podcast illuminati um when you sign up um to uh, spotify you can become a subscriber to the podcast um, and you can access bonus material. You can also get the podcast ad-free, which is quite an attractive prospect for some of you. So um, so do consider doing that as well. You can get every, uh, every last morsel of the History of the World podcast in one place. And each week we endeavour to give you some bonus material. So um, you can listen to 10 minutes more, a little bit about what's going on in the world of the History of the World podcast at the moment and uh, how we've constructed the latest episodes, uh, some of the books and materials and resources that, we, uh, and that we've used for that episode. So uh, do please consider coming along and joining me for uh, the subscriber-exclusive uh, content on Spotify. Listener messages and reviews. But of course, everybody... All of the main focus of the podcast, all the main episodes will always remain free of charge to all you wonderful people, uh, which is, uh, you know, for me, it's half of the half of the appeal of the podcast is uh, the accessibility and, and, and how you don't necessarily have to pay to enjoy it. Um, I'll quickly read out the reviews this week. Um, Niall de la... Totep has written in and uh, has put even killed, has given it five star and put that some good historical presentation in response to another review that took issue with how Chris framed evolution. I really don't 
know what this is about because I listened to the early episodes and didn't see any deviation from the dominant theory of evolution as characterised by the modern scientific discipline. I think it's all a fine job of presenting a survey of the predominant conclusions of various fields experts. This is what I'm trying to achieve and uh, thank you for for recognising that. I think um, one of the reviews more recently took... um, Uh, took exception to the fact that I claimed that Charles Darwin had said that we descended from monkeys. To be honest, that was my interpretation of what I I read. I did consider, I did think carefully about writing that comment and um, what Charles Darwin said, and it was was rightly pointed out by another uh, reviewer that... um, you know, it is like one of these urban myths that Charles Darwin did say that we descended from monkeys. But in actual fact, you can interpret what he said as being as such because uh, he did say that we had a common ancestor with uh, chimpanzees or, or the apes of the world. Now, the apes um, uh, are supposed to have diverged from other monkey species um, maybe some 25 million years ago. So, like, to, so, so it's not totally incorrect that Charles Darwin insinuated that we descended from monkeys, but he didn't say it in so many words, and that's what a lot of modern uh, reporters point out uh, is that he actually did not say that categorically. So, um, it's really just about interpretation. But um, then also, that's some of the negative comments that I get are also incredibly helpful to me in making me contemplate the material that I've written. So we can't always get it right 100% of the time. And uh, But um, for those of you that have, have got an open mind to anything, certainly, that you hear or read, you will you will probably get more out of the, the experience than, than maybe some other closed-minded or some that are looking to be critical. So um, J1BJKD, um, sorry, that last... Uh, that last review was, was from the USA, as is this one, uh, from J1BJKD has put great content. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. You've given me hundreds of hours of great content and I love you for it. Well, that's a very, very warm review. Thank you very much. Let's uh, listen to some of the uh, messages that have been sent in this week. Bob Gray has written in and said, Chris, fabulous podcast. I share the same desire to put the various eras of history into one logical sequence. So I'm very grateful for the hard work you have done to pull this together. One aspect of human history that puzzles me is the evolution of our physical appearance, which seems to have occurred relatively quickly during the migration of people out of Africa. How did the pigment of our skin, the colour of our eyes, the nature and colour of our hair, and all other characteristics of our appearance and physique change and why? Maybe another episode. Thanks. Many thanks, Bob. Um, a lot of experts have a lot of different opinions about these things, Bob. So, so it's it's worth investigating what the experts say. Maybe, but like what I would probably do is just Google it because if you if you Google, you you, you get access to probably the latest uh, scientific theories. And um, you know, I think um, the the thing that fascinates me more than sort of hair skin and eye colour is really the fact that we've lost the hair on our body that that fascinates me um in terms of looking at our appearance it's uh quite quite uh, astonishing really isn't it how how different we look to our to our uh to our ape cousins so that that that's something that really interests me anyway but thanks for the message bob that's very kind of you 
Um, Wally Thomas, a new member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati, has written in and said, Dear Chris, I hope this message finds you well. I felt compelled to reach out and express my deep appreciation for your remarkable podcast series. I discovered the Hot World podcast several months ago on Spotify and have enjoyed the first three volumes very much. Um, I just finished episode 72 on Peru and Nazca. Thank you very much for your incredible efforts to produce a quality product with such humility, enthusiasm and good humour. I just signed up as a Patreon and this note to you is like a personal time capsule. I figure at my current rate of semi-binging, that won't be too long before I'm up to date and may hear my name read out. Um, I'll I'll just paraphrase some of this as well. Uh, Your podcast... um, uh, oh, sorry, I'll, be, I'll, I'll just pick up here. One aspect of history that has always fascinated me is our unwavering commitment to conflict, conquest and eventual demise. The human story is one marked by a relentless pursuit of power and dominance and your podcast beautifully captures the essence of this epic journey. And lastly, I wanted to express my gratitude for your elaboration on the transition from hunter-gatherer societies to sedentary agriculturalists who discovered the invaluable role of salt in food preservation. It's a topic that particularly resonated with me as I've been sharing this knowledge with my biomedical students. From ancient times to the present day, humans have been consuming excess salt and more recently sugar and the consequences for high blood pressure and cardiovascular and metabolic disease have been enormous. Um, In closing, um, I want to reiterate my deep appreciation for your outstanding podcast series, your dedication, passion and storytelling prowess have left an indelible mark on my journey of discovery. Warmest regards, Wally. Um, Well, yeah, very interesting that. I think um, someone historically has also written in and, and concerning the radical change in human diet. And of course, yeah, I do believe that we eat a wholly unnatural diet these days. It's not really uh, anything like our hunter-gatherer diet, which is our natural diet. And um, and there has to be health consequences to that. So uh, hopefully now we're realising um, the error of our ways and we're um, considering how to better our diets and, uh, and therefore... Um, preserve our our health, but uh, very interesting. Thanks very thanks very much for the message, Wally. Very interesting, and uh, thank you for helping out with the upkeep of the podcast. We really do appreciate it. Anyway, that's it for another week. Next week, um, I'm pretty sure next week we'll be able to tell the story of the Elizabethan sea dog. So I'm really looking forward to that one. It's a, a, an excellent podcast subject. I suppose I'm a little bit. Um, biased because uh, because of the English content, um, the the subject being the the country of England. So uh, maybe I'm a little bit biased, but anyway, it's going to be very interesting uh, as it opens up a whole new theatre of um, of, uh, of travel to the Americas and that kind of thing. So so it's going to be a lot of interesting content. Anyway, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening, and uh, have a great week, everyone. Until next week. Be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show 
at History of the World Podcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. See you next time.